away our sins. We thank you that he bore our sins on the cross in his body. We thank you that you raised him from the dead so that whoever simply believes in Jesus Christ as their Savior will never die but have eternal life. Father, this morning we ask that you would continue to guide and direct us, our hearts, as we continue to hear your word through the gospel of John this morning. We just pray, Father, that we would keep our eyes on Jesus as we look at the progression in this gospel of his, the story of his ministry leading to his death and resurrection. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, next Sunday will be the first Sunday in March, so we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper here at the end of, I mean, April. April. See, I said March and you were saying May. <laughs> it's April, almost. All right, we were playing April Fool's joke on each other. So that's all. All right, let's begin this morning. Hi, how are you? Yeah, you're looking great. Yeah. Looking great. The title of today's message, Though I Was Blind, Now I See. That's certainly something that a lot of people have uh, rejoiced in in terms of our salvation. We sing a song, Amazing Grace, that has that line in it. This morning, we're going to see where it comes from. It's from the Gospel of John and the passage that we'll be looking at this morning, starting in verse 18. So if you would at this time, please turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 9, verse 18. Gospel of John, chapter 9, verse 18. And we'll begin. The Jews then did not believe it of him. Now, the setting here is that Jesus had performed an unprecedented miracle. He had turned, he'd taken a man who was blind from birth and gave him sight. And then he went to his, the man went to his neighbors and they couldn't believe it either. They were astonished. And they decided that they, they needed to bring the, this man to the local religious officials so that they could document it and, and, and explain to everybody what happened. When they did that, then the, the Jews and inter- the, the, the Pharisees interrogated the man and they didn't believe what he had to say. And then they had they did the next step in their interrogation. And we're going to see that this morning. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight. And they questioned them, saying, is this your son whom you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So a second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He then answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? 
You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? They reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. The man answered and said to them, well, here's an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners. But if anyone is God fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born entirely in sins. And are you teaching us? So they put him out. Now, in chapter nine, we have Jesus performing his sixth out of seven, his sixth sign miracle. Gospel of John consists of seven sign miracles. They're all they all point to one thing. They point to the fact that Jesus Christ is the son of God and the Messiah of the Jews. The sixth sign miracle. Jesus opened the eyes of a man who was born blind, blind from birth. Now, I want to give you this morning the first sign miracles that he, Jesus has performed before this and that we've seen. And, and that's just to kind of catch us up and keep us focused on the big picture of what he has accomplished uh, in his ministry. The first one, recall, is changing the water into wine at the wedding feast in Cana. That was in chapter two. That was the first sign miracle that John records. Remember, Jesus performed many, many more miracles than what John gives us in this gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke document some additional ones. And John at the end of his gospel says, if I, if I tried to record everything that Jesus said and did, remember, I don't think all the books in the world could contain it. So that gives you some idea of the magnitude of Jesus' ministry when it came to miracles. But remember, John carefully selects under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, seven of them in order to reveal all the aspects of who Jesus is. That's the question in this gospel. Who is Jesus? And one of the ways in which John illuminates us and the way Jesus tried to reveal himself was through the seven sign miracles that John records. First one, changing water into wine at the wedding feast in Cana. This showed that Jesus had authority over nature, over nature. That was in chapter two. In chapter four, he healed the nobleman's son. He, the, the, the nobleman came to Jesus and said, my son is, is deathly ill. I ask that you heal him. I know you can. And Jesus just said, go. He's been healed. And then by the time the man traveled to Capernaum where his son was, he realized that exact moment when Jesus spoke those words, his son was healed. This is again, this is another sign of not his deity for sure, but also that he's the Messiah. In the Old Testament, the prophets, particularly Isaiah and Jeremiah, declared that when the Messiah comes, he would perform healing miracles. And indeed, John documents this first one, the second overall sign miracle in chapter four. Then in chapter five, recall that he healed that paralytic, a man who was at at the pool at Bethesda and and had had been paralyzed for many years, And then Jesus comes to him and says, do you want to get well? The man gives him kind of an excuse of why he can't. Jesus says, just get up, take your pallet and go home. And the man did. Another amazing miracle. That's in chapter five. Then in chapter six, we saw two. The first one was feeding the 5,000. 
remember, with five loaves and two fish. Jesus used this miracle. Remember, he uses even the sign miracles, which, of course, speak to who he is, to to give even more information. You know, remember in chapter six, he then uses that that great miracle with with the bread. And then he explains how he's the bread of life. And that is that that is as amazing as significant as that miracle is in the natural realm for man to look at that and realize that that would never happen naturally. There's no way you can feed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. And as amazed as they were, Jesus then goes on to say, wait a minute, there's something more, very much more important here in your presence now because I am the bread of life. He who believes in me will not die. And so that was that was the first miracle in chapter six. That's the fourth overall. And then we have the fifth one, chapter six, again, when it's Jesus is walking on water. He had performed the miracle on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He was coming back to Capernaum and the disciples went ahead of him in a boat. There were no other boats left on the shore. And yet there he was walking towards them in the night as the storm grew out and they were afraid they were going to perish. And then, of course, the one that we have now is that he's then he's healing a man born blind. As things go along, the miracles become more and more amazing. The last two, the most amazing of all, this sixth and seventh, the one we're studying today is the is the miracle of having a man who was born blind and giving him sight. It's unprecedented. We studied that last week, how if you look through the entire Old Testament, you will never find somebody healing a man born blind, never. Other than Jesus Christ, no one in the New Testament does either. It's a unique, amazing miracle, unprecedented. In the Old Testament, the only one who could heal somebody who was blind was the Lord himself. In the New Testament, Jesus did it. And, and in so doing, he was fulfilling, again, the, pro- the promise, the prophecy that when, when the Messiah comes, he would, the blind would see. So this is another miracle that points to his deity, as well as the fact that he's the Jewish Messiah. Again, each sign points to Jesus as the Son of God and the Jewish Messiah. Now, the rest of chapter 9 that we are now in, after we see the sign miracle itself, and by the way, remember, it was very matter-of-fact. Jesus didn't draw attention to himself. Jesus said to the man, you know, he put, he put clay on his eyes, and he said, go and wash yourself. He didn't even tell him that what would happen at the end. So none of the, even his disciples weren't, didn't really understand what was going on. And it wasn't until the man went to the pool of Siloam and, had, and washed his eyes, off the, the, the clay off the lids of his eyes. And then he opened his eyes and he could see. From that moment forward until just about the end of this chapter, Jesus is not present in the narrative. And yet the entire story is all about who he is. Now, the way that this is uh, depicted in chapter nine is remember six conversations, six of them. While Jesus is the subject of all six, he's not even present for the first four. So we're going to get another list right now. These are the six conversations in chapter nine. All right. First one, the formerly blind man, FBM. All right, because I'm just going to mention him several times. The formerly blind man, the FBM, and his neighbors. We looked at that conversation last week. It was in verses 8 to 12. 
They were so astonished when he came in their presence and they realized he could see and they knew who this was. At least they thought they did. And he had been a blind beggar from from as far back as they can remember. And now he can see. It was so astonishing that there were some who said that's not really him. The guy looks like him, but it can't be him. Nobody's ever healed a man born blind. And so they were amazed, astonished, and they decided, you know what we got to do? We got to bring them to the religious authorities. And then that kicks into the second conversation, which was between the formerly blind man and the Pharisees, the Pharisees, verses 13 to 17. The Pharisees were local in the sense that they 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 um, were there in every community. They were the ones who would conduct the synagogue services and they were presenting themselves as experts on the law. Although, as we've seen already, that that law has, as it were, been polluted by their own traditions. And they 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 made more of their traditions than the original law. If you remember that. That was the second one. We looked at this one last week as well. They, 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 they refused to believe for the most part. They split into two groups. One of them focused on the fact that technically, according to their traditions, by think of it, by, by simply making clay on the Sabbath, that he had committed a sin. He had broken the Sabbath because he had taken spittle and made clay. And they wanted to make a big deal out of that. You know why? Because they didn't want to have to face the truth that actually this Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. <laughs> he, he could do whatever he wants. And he's his, his father's working and he's going to work. But they didn't want to fo- they don't want to face that. They couldn't. They couldn't. They, they, they understood that everything would change if he really is the Messiah. And they couldn't. They didn't want to talk. They hated him. Remember, they already had decided to have him put to death. This, now, this is a, this is the majority of the Pharisees, remember, because we see also that there's a dispute. They couldn't agree. There was one big faction that said, no, he's a sinner. Nobody who, 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 who breaks the Sabbath can possibly be somebody who could perform a miracle. The other group said, no, wait a minute. OK, maybe technically what you're talking about is true, but he healed the blind man. And they focused on the possibility that this miracle actually happened. And so there was it was inconclusive. And so that the, but the, then from there forward, the dominant group, the ones who hated Jesus, the more powerful group takes over the interrogation. And remember, we see the change. And this is maybe subtle from them being called the Pharisees, which were all of them. Now, John talks about the Jews, which was that more dominant group of Pharisees that hated him and couldn't wanted to prove that he didn't perform this miracle. So that's the second one that we saw last week. Now, this morning, we are going to continue with the third of the the six conversations. And that means we're going to be beginning in just a moment in verse 18. When when the Jews heard that Jesus uh, had had this man had testified that Jesus had healed him and he was born blind, they refused to believe it. And they thought. They probably thought to themselves, well, maybe he was told he was born blind, but he really wasn't born blind. Right. Who would know? Right. Only the parents. Right. The parents would know. They're already searching from, for some way of invalidating this miracle or or at least invalidating the fact that Jesus was the one who performed it, as we'll see. 
So that's where we pick up today, the third conversation. But I'm going to give you all six again. The fourth one in verse 24 to 34. Now the formerly blind, blind man is called back a second time to testify. That's because the Jews couldn't accept what the parents said. And so they say, let's bring him back again. In fact, the parents said, hey, why don't you just talk to my son again? And they did. This time it became much more confrontational. And by the end of it, it's where the man is actually controlling the interrogation because he's talking to them and asking them questions. And they couldn't answer his question. He was he was in unassailable. The logic that he used, the facts that he pointed to, they couldn't argue against. So as so instead of that, they just turn on him as an individual and say, who are you? To even talk to us, You're, you were you were born blind. You, you were a sinner from birth. We're not going to listen to you. I, I, have you ever been in a situation where where an authority is clearly not right about something? They're, they're clearly wrong, and all they do is get more and more upset, and they just cling to their authority. Who are you to, to even talk to me? Yeah, and then so that's that. Then the fifth one, they throw him out. Now we don't want to talk to you anymore. Get out of here. And then the formerly blind man is left alone. And then Jesus comes back into the picture. And here the, it's, the, it's the climax of chapter 9, this fifth of six conversations. Because now Jesus is going to explain exactly who he is to this man. We saw, remember, that this man's understanding of Jesus grew through the chapter. At first, he, was, he, was, he considered him, all he knew about him was his name and that he healed him. Then as he witnessed this debate between the Pharisees and he came out of it on the side, of course, of the ones that said this man is from God. And so now he thinks he's from God and he's a prophet. And then then Jesus reveals himself to him. I am the son of man. I am the Messiah. And then the man hears that, believes Jesus, and then he gets he worships him. And so, in other words, he heard the gospel and believed it. And that's the highlight of chapter nine. Then the sixth conversation, which is at the very end. Now, after Jesus has has witnessed this and, and, and then he turns and he says to the Pharisees, he says, basically says, listen, those of those who have been who were blind and now see. Well, there's also people who think they see and now they're still blind. And of course, he was talking directly to the Pharisees. That's the last conversation. So, again, there's six of them, formerly blind men and his neighbors the formerly blind man and the Pharisees, the Jews and the parents of the formerly blind man. Remember, again, the Jews are a subset of the group of Pharisees that began this. So the parents, they don't like what the parents have to say. They, they bring back the formerly blind man. There's a confrontation. They're, they're offended. They're angry. And they can't do anything else. They kick him out. And then when he's there alone, Jesus comes into the picture tells the formerly blind man who he is, and the blind man worships him, formerly blind man worships him, and then Jesus uses that as a way in which to indict the Pharisees who thought they could see, they thought they understood the law, they thought they knew everything about God, but in fact they didn't even know the first thing about God, and therefore they remain blind. So that's, that is chapter 9 from start to finish. Last week, we considered the first two of those conversations. In each of them, the formerly blind man responds to questions. The first questions came from his neighbors. The second 
group of questions came from the Pharisees. In both cases, recall, the testimony of the healed man was simple, clear, and accurate. Not only that, but when the, when the Pharisees asked him to explain what happened, he gave them the exact same information he had given the neighbors. This was a good witness. He was very consistent. There were no conflicts in the witness that he gave. Remember, very simply, he says, the man named Jesus applied clay to my eyes. I washed and now I see simplicity and the way the gospel is to be preached the same way. Right. And, and, and in fact, it's, it's very similar in terms of its, in fact, its progression is a simple set of events that we are to proclaim that, that we're born sinners and that God gave his one and only son. Jesus Christ died for our sins, was buried and he was raised on the third day. Very simple, direct. And that is the way that we are to witness to who Jesus is by preaching the gospel. All right. So, again, I've mentioned this already, but the Pharisees started to argue. And the argument was basically who Jesus is. Is he from God, as one group thought, or is he a sinner who can't be from God? Now, now the fact that when they talked about him as a sinner, it doesn't mean that they that he committed one sin. Because if that were the case, nobody could ever could ever pre, pray to God and have his prayers answered because we have all sinned. It meant that he had a lifestyle of consistency, that he continued to break the law and so forth. Now, when they couldn't resolve it, remember, they turned to this man born blind and they said, what do you think? And he didn't hesitate. He's a prophet. He's from God. Those hardened enemies of Jesus, the Jews now, subset of the Pharisees, wouldn't they refuse to believe him? And again, they decide that they're going to call on the parents of this man, the parents. They didn't like the first witness. They're going to call the second witnesses, the parents, the mother and father of this man who claimed that he had been healed miraculously by Jesus. After all, the parents were the only people who knew for sure whether their son had been born blind or not. Now, the Jews, in calling the parents, were hoping desperately to hear, no, he wasn't really born blind. He's telling one of those stories. That's what they wanted. That's what they hoped. And, and even though they, if they were being rational, they knew that that, that, that wasn't true. They still were hoping as a technicality because they were great on technicalities and legalism. And they thought, well, if we could get the parents to contradict the son, we're done. We don't have to think about Jesus in this so-called miracle anyway. Now, even if they were, even if they were hoping that the facts were different, they were hoping even if the, if they couldn't change the facts, at least they thought they could bully the parents it's a saying that he wasn't born blind, not because he wasn't, but he was, but because they were so intimidated by them. And we'll see why and how they how they set things up to intimidate the parents. So that's where we are today. We're going to look at conversations three and four. And let's begin now in verse 18. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? 
Now, notice the intimidation in this. They, they don't say, is this your man who was born blind? They lead the witness who you say was born blind. In other words, we'll give you an opportunity to, to, to deny that. Okay. Then a trap question. How does he now see? They were hoping and to a certain extent, extent succeeded in getting them so, so um, worried and anxious about that last question. How does he now see? Because they thought that that was a trap question that if, if they said anything that Jesus was the Messiah, then they could throw them out. That's what they were hoping. And the parents knew that that was a question that would, would, would trap them, would, 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 they would be um, putting themselves in a position where they would be thrown out of the synagogue. That was one of the worst fates that could happen to a Jew in that time because the, 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 the synagogue was, of course, the way in which people worship God, but it was also the center of community. And so essentially, if you're being thrown out of the synagogue, you're being thrown out of the community. Okay, and there were still repercussions. Basically, the peop- the other people were told not to associate with you, not to help you in any way. So it was a severe penalty that was hanging over them if they said anything that suggested that they thought Jesus was the Messiah. So again, the question is really two, but the first one is a two-part. They said, is this your son whom you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? Well, the parents... If, if we continue in verse 18, we did that already. The parents volunteered to answer the first question, the two-part question, because those were facts and they knew the truth. Notice again in verse, we'll begin in verse 20 now, continue in verse 20. His parents answered them and they said, we know that this is our son. Like, duh. Of course they do, right? And that, and that he was born blind. But how he sees now we do not know, or who opened his eyes, we do not know. I want you to see something in verse 21 where they really got close to, as it were, dying themselves because they didn't ask him who opened his eyes. They just said how he now sees. So they pretty much kind of coughed up the idea that there, there's a miracle worker and we know who he is. See that? But in any event, they, they wouldn't go any further. We don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. They passed the buck to their son, essentially. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. The Jews, again, are always the, the more powerful group of leaders and Pharisees who had it in against Jesus, who hated him and wanted to see him dead. They were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed among themselves that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. That was the reason why the parents said, he's of age, ask him. So they stopped short of answering that third question. How was it that he regained his sight? They didn't want to answer that again because they were afraid of the Jews. They knew that these that, that, that this dominant wing of the Pharisees had gotten together. They wanted to get rid of Jesus. And they said, you know what, we can't have anybody even suggesting that he's the Messiah because that could cause a big popular uprising against us. So we're not going to allow that. We're going to, anybody does that, we're going to intimidate them. We're going to throw them out. We're going to make an example of them. And, the, and of course, the parents were afraid of that. So these leaders had gotten, had gotten together informally, illegally, really, and they had made an agreement among themselves. 
Right? These are Pharisees that run local synagogues. They all got together and they made an agreement. Let's all agree that if anybody comes to our synagogue or with our people and confesses Jesus to be the Christ, we're going to punish them severely. We're going to be we're going to ban them from attending the synagogue services. And again, they didn't hold a hearing. They didn't vote. They weren't even the group ultimately who was responsible for those kind of edicts. It was really the high priests and the council. Now, some of the Pharisees were members of that, but that had not convened. They nobody had made that ruling officially. They just it was a gentleman's agreement, as we sometimes say. Okay. Now, of course, the the parents knew that Jesus had healed their son. I mean, look at verse 22 again. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. In other words, they already they, they connected the dots themselves. They said, let's think about this. We know who healed him. But if we start talking about a miracle worker, then they're going to ask us the next question, which is, well, who is he? And then at that point, they're, they're either stuck in a lie or then they got to they got to indict themselves and they knew they would be thrown out. But they knew all of the story. They, of course, knew their son was born blind. They could, everybody could see that he now had his eyesight. Clearly, that is a great miracle has occurred. Now, this is getting all known by the parents, all really known by the Pharisees as well, although they couldn't, they couldn't accept that. So again, he was born blind, he sees, then that means a great miracle has occurred. Not only that, but it was the man named Jesus who performed that miracle. And they knew that. And if you have a miracle that is unprecedented, a man healing the eyes of a man born blind, only one person, human, could have accomplished that. He must be the Messiah. So they knew all of that, but they were afraid. And so they figured that, you know what, we'll claim we don't know anything like this, right? Sometimes we call that plausible deniability. Big phrase. What does it mean? Well, maybe we can get away with it. After all, he doesn't know what we know and we don't know. So we're just going to beg up. We're going to step and plead ignorance, step back. But of course, they were chickens because they then they didn't just leave it there. They were they didn't want any more interrogation. So they said, hey, wait a minute. Talk to him. Now, that's a very cowardly thing to do if you think about it. Right here. You have this son of yours. He was born blind and now he sees and instead of having courage yourself, you're going to put it all on him. You see, and, and, and by the way, they knew that he was going to tell the truth again. This man had a lot of character. He was a great witness. He was always going to say the same thing. Listen, he put a clay on my eyes. I washed and now I see. And he's never going to say anything different from that, as we'll see. Again, the answer that they gave in verse 21 but as to how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. They did know, but they were afraid. Ask him. He is of age. Now, that he was of age just acknowledged the fact that this was, in fact, an interrogation. And he was old enough to be a witness in court. That's why they said he is of age. Doesn't mean he's 19. Right? He could have been 40. We don't really know how old he is. But they were establishing that he is a witness who can speak for himself. He will speak for himself. Again, verse 22, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. Fear can do strange things to people. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. 
that was the reason his parents said he is of age. Ask him. Now, at this point in the in the in the interrogation, what happened? Well, they didn't say he was not born blind. They were hoping they would say that, but he, they didn't. And they also, of course, said that he now sees, which everybody knew. In other words, the Jewish leaders got the one answer that they feared. They feared that this man was blind from birth and he now sees. Well, that's a miracle. And 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 they couldn't they could no longer they tried everything they could. They they said we're not going to believe the man himself. The parents come in and they say, "Oh yeah, he was born blind and now he sees." So they have no leg to stand on anymore in terms of evidence, okay? It's it's clear, you know, the Jews had a had a rule about witnesses that that you had to have two that and they can't conflict at all, right? Well, they had two, and they didn't conflict. A miracle definitely took place. Not any miracle, but an unprecedented, God-ordained miracle, and they knew it. What were they going to do now? But really, they had really no options, but the parents had given them an, an idea, why don't you bring him back? And so that's what they did. They put the man back on the stand, why? I mean, after all, he'd already told them everything that was needed for them to know in order to come to the conclusion that a great miracle had occurred. Well, like a lot of clever lawyers, they were hoping, let's put him on the stand again and we're going to set up a perjury trap. We're going to get him to just say something that was a little different from the first time. And then we can rule this. We can't believe this witness. OK. And, and at this point, Remember, the, the parents had said he was born blind and then he now sees. OK, so now their only thing they're really hoping for is that they can somehow invalidate Jesus. Right. Indict him. Right. And, and somehow, I don't know how, come up with another explanation about how this happened, that a man was born blind and he can now see. So they said, let's bring him back. Let's try to get him to say something that would either contradict what he would said earlier or contradict his parents. Maybe, for example, they were thinking that there was a conspiracy between the parents and the child. Right. But in any event, they they were desperate and they brought him back, hoping against hope that they could now find him, catch him in a trap, find out that he was hiding something the first time and he blurted out. But they didn't know this witness if they thought that, you know, in chapter one, Jesus said of Nathaniel, here is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And he could have said the same thing about this formerly blind man. Look at verse 24. So the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. So, again, they're using their authority here. They're intimidating him. They're saying, listen, we know you lied. Right, we know you may not know this, but you said that, we, that, that you, you thought he was a guy. Well, we know something you don't. He's actually a sinner. You're going to sit here in front of us and try to convince us that a sinner, somebody who broke the law again and again and again, committed a miracle. Now, when they said, notice how they how they put it, give glory to God. They weren't asking him to start singing praises to God. You might think that. Right. But that was that was that was a code word. That was that was a uh, another expression. If you go to the Old Testament, we will in a moment. That meant meant this. It meant in effect, they were saying to him, "Stop lying, and now tell the truth." When I was a kid, 
my grandmother from Ireland had an expression, right, when she thought that we were lying. And she would say, tell the truth and shame the devil. That's what they would say. It's kind of the same thing, right? You know, give glory to God. Stop lying and tell the truth. They were they were hoping that maybe he really was hiding something that would invalidate this miracle. Or again, at least they could intimidate him to either contradict himself or say, I was just kidding or something. Right. Now, I mentioned that this expression, give glory to God, had a particular meaning in Jewish culture. And I want you to see an example of that all the way back to Joshua. So if you could turn now <coughs> to Joshua chapter 7, verse 19. Joshua chapter 7, verse 19. Now, in this case, there was a man who actually lied. And and Joshua was imploring him, begging him to actually tell the truth. Notice Joshua 7, 19. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel. There's that, ex- that is ex- expression again. Give glory to God. Give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And that was exactly what the, the, the Jews were saying to this man born blind. Tell me now that you have lied to us. Don't hide the the facts that you don't want us to know. Tell us now. Okay, back in John, chapter 9, where we are, verse 25, the next verse. You can tell already that the Pharisees and the Jews like like to push their weight around with people. They, they actually many times weren't interested in the truth. I mean, I mean, we saw something similar in chapter 8 when they remember they had brought that woman who was caught in adultery and they put him before Jesus. And remember, they asked him a trap question, right? Moses said that such a person should be put to death. What do you say? They had no interest in hearing Jesus' theological interpretation of the law. They were trying to trap him. They didn't really care about the truth. They cared about their agenda, their power, and they wanted, as they always did when they interacted with Jesus, to find an excuse, some way, so that they could put him on trial, really, and put him to death. But Jesus knew that that moment when he was to die was ordained by his father, and until that time, no matter what the Jews tried, what tricks they tried, trying to get him to be uh, saying something against the law, anything. They knew that Jesus knew that it wasn't going to work because it's only when God the Father ordained his hour that he would actually be put to death on the cross. John 9, 25. Again, the Jews, these again, I want to keep emphasizing this. The Jews are not all Jewish people. It was a specific group, in, in, in primarily in Jerusalem, that were leaders that wanted to put Jesus to death and hated him. He then answered. They had asked him, hey, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. You know, fess up. He then answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. You know, the parents, when they said they didn't know, were actually trying to avoid the truth that they did know. Here, this man is saying the truth. Again, he says, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know. 
that though I was blind, now I see. He's an excellent witness. He, he, he is one of my favorite people among all the people that Jesus ever interacted with. You know, because he was he was he had an open heart. He he was grateful. He was he was um, ready to believe the best. Certainly believed that 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 God was capable of healing him, and then knew that Jesus was the one who God had used. So at the very least, he knew that this man was from God. But in any event, he only sticks to facts that he knows. Only the facts that he knows. Doesn't try to speculate in areas where he's not qualified to do so. Very simple. Though I was blind, now I see. And it wasn't his place to judge this man as a sinner, was it? Whether he's a sinner, I do not know. That's humility. That's honesty. He's saying, listen, I don't know all about this man's life. I mean, I've barely met him. I mean, basically, I was blind. This man came came to me and had me put clay. He put clay on my eyes, told me to wash, and now I see, and his name is Jesus. He knew all of that. Didn't know if he was a sinner. As a matter of fact, they were the ones who really had the authority to determine that. He, he, he knew it wasn't his place to judge this man as a sinner. That was for them to decide. They're the ones who claimed they were to be the experts on such matters. Verse 26. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open his how did he open your eyes? At this point, the Jews are getting more and more angry and more and more desperate. They knew the facts weren't on their side. They knew that they had lost this. They knew that 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 the only thing left for them to do was for them to somehow uh, express their anger, use their authority, do something. But at this point, they basically lost all objectivity. They will make they didn't they didn't make at this point. They, they didn't make any bones of the fact that they were just going to act in emotion. It's kind of like when when Jesus was tempted in the in the wilderness by Satan. Remember the first two times he tried to trip him up, hoping that he could use scripture to get Jesus to contradict himself or to do something that was out of the plan of God. But the third time he they just said, no, nah, this is the deal. I want you to worship me. Right. It's the same thing here. They tried to use, you know, logic and, and witnessing and all of that. But when that didn't work, they just retreated to pure anger and pure hatred. By now, they knew that this man, Jesus, had opened this man's eyes. Not only that, but he'd already told them. Again, look at look at look at verse 26. Again, they knew the answer to this question. What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? You can see you can hear them. They're raising their voices. They're desperate. They're angry. They knew how Jesus had opened this man's eyes. He'd already told them. He'd already he'd already testified several times. Right. The man put clay in my eyes and told me to wash. And now I see they knew exactly how this man had opened his eyes. And and the man knew that they knew how he had opened his eyes. And that's why he says what he does, what he does. Look at verse 27. He answered them. Remember, they said, give glory to God. This man is a sinner. I don't know if he's a sinner, but I do know that I was blind and now I see. This is their retort. This is how they came back at him. Verse 27. 
No, this is, I'm sorry, this is him. He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. He's matching their intensity now. He's starting to challenge them, right? I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Now, the man knew why they wanted to hear it again. But then look at the next statement. You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? Can you see the irony in that that he's trying to do? Can you see that, in a sense, he really is now trying to get them to really explode and be emotional, and he's going to get his wish, right? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? I mean, that was a real jab, right? Because they know that's the last thing that they wanted to be. So the man knew also why they wanted to hear it again. He knew now at this point that they just wanted to trip him up. They wanted to get him to change his story. They wanted him to recant. They wanted him to come clean. There must be something that he's hiding. And so at this point, the man has said, I'm done testifying. I've told you the same thing. Okay. So he now he sees what's really going on if he hadn't already. And so that's why he's turned now. And he's saying, you know what? I'm done with my testimony. I'm going to start asking you some questions. And again, the next question that he asks is just dripping with irony, right? Dripping with irony. He knew the last thing in the world that they ever wanted to be was to become a disciple of Jesus. They hated him. They wanted him dead. They, 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 they were trying everything they could to try to convince all his other disciples to abandon him. You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? Well, that was the last straw for them. They were apoplectic. They, the very thought, that they, they, just a thought that hit them in their brain of them being Jesus' disciples sent them over the edge. You see, now, now they're totally off objectivity. They're totally into emotion and anger and rage. And all they want to do is basically, you know, kick this man in the head and get him out of here. Right. They were filled with rage. Now, what do, what do you do when you're filled with rage? What do you do when you're an authority figure and you've already you already blown it? You already realize that you've lost the logic battle, the the, the evidence battle. They throw insults at him. Right. John 9, 28, they reviled him and they said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he's from. Now, they're, they're telling him that you're his disciple. But here's the thing. The man hadn't had time to become Jesus' disciple yet. What is a disciple? A disciple who's somebody who selects a teacher and sits under his teaching. Well, well, the blind man hadn't done any of that yet. Again, he just knew a few things about Jesus. So clearly the Jews weren't stating a fact. What they were doing, they meant that as an insult. An insult. In other words, in their mind, of course, they're saying to themselves, Jesus is a sinner. You're following a sinner. Who are you? In other words, they were, they, were, they were again appealing to their authority. They were then trying to get him to be ashamed, and maybe then he would change his story. You are, you're following a sinner. We are disciples of Moses. That's called pulling rank. Pulling rank, right? How, I don't care what you say. I don't care what your parents say. Bottom line is, we're disciples of Moses, right? 
And by the way, they claimed, and we're going to see this in a minute, not only to be disciples, but the rightful successors of Moses. Now, that's a position of power among the Jewish people. You know, it's interesting how people are prepared to believe powerful people, even when they know the facts are against the powerful people. All right. Sometimes out of fear, sometimes out of saying, well, who are these people? You know, these are just peasants. We're, we're going to stay on the side of the authority. It's safer to do that. And they're the, they have years of, of learning, years of, of scholarship. And they, 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 they are committed to our community. And here come these upstarts trying to ruin everything. So, so, so that, that people are, are, again, prepared. And, and we see it today, don't we? I mean, we see that people are out and out lying and their positions of authority. And people are believing them, right? People are believing them. Without mentioning any names, so they were they they claimed that they were the rightful successors of Moses, and you know what? In a sense, they really were. I mean, the, the, their power was not a fiction, right? They had been put in the seat of Moses, <laughs> and the, but they were using that to have un un respect and and admiration, right? No matter what. They thought they they deserved that. Look at Matthew chapter 23, verse 1. We are disciples of Moses. This is what we know. We know God has spoken to Moses. You're saying that God speaks to this man. Sabbath breaker from Galilee, from Nazareth. You know what? We have we know that the God that we worship has spoken to Moses. That's documented. But as for this man, we don't even know where he's from. Matthew 23, 1, Moses. Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. I love that. They were illegitimate, right? Like, you know how you have an illegitimate ruler, wasn't elected, or in Jesus' day and age, you had Herod, who wasn't really Jewish, and he was a, he was a, un, uh, he was a fraudulent leader, but nevertheless, he's a leader. Remember, we're not, we're not told, Jesus never said to us, if you think that they're a legitimate ruler, then you need to obey them. He said, they're in the position of rulership, I don't know. I don't, you can't you can't try to figure out whether or not they're they're legitimate or not. It doesn't matter. Right now, they are they are the rulers. The same thing here. The scribes and Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, notice all that they tell you, do and observe, right? But do not do according to their deeds, right? Do what I say, not what I do. Jesus is saying, yeah. That's the way I want you to behave. Do as they say, not as they do. For for they say things and they do not do them. They're hypocrites. They tie heavy burdens and lay them on a man's shoulders. But they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. Jesus has already convicted them of that back in chapter 5. He was saying, you seek the approval of men not the approval of God. Verse 5, they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries 
and lengthen the tassels of their garments. In other words, they want everybody to see how holy they are. They love the place of honor. They love honor. They love respect. They love admiration. They love people to think well of them. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues. In the synagogues, they had the chief seats. And respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. They wanted, they wanted to have unquestioned authority. They, 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 were, they were really focused on what people thought of them. They didn't care if they contradicted themselves. These are the same Pharisees that are now bringing up Moses. Now, why were they bringing up Moses? Well, they, were, they brought up Moses as this point of comparison. Moses, this great one, let us out of Egypt, who, who got the law directly from God. We know God spoke to him. So the very law that we that we follow and follow and, and, and we've studied and and you know you're supposed to live by that that came from Moses. Who's this Jesus? Right? He's a nobody. So they were they wanted to ridicule Jesus in front of this man. And so not only Jesus but his followers. See, they were most concerned with the followers of Jesus because they understood that that movement could grow. Right. We're going to see that 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 this this actually started happening in a big way in chapter 11, because Jesus is going to perform the most astounding miracle possible. A man who had been dead, not just blind, dead for for three days, that four days. And and he called him back to life out of the tomb. That got a lot of people's attention, as you can imagine. Right. And so then so that they really did start to grow his disciples, you know, get more and more and more of them. It, did, it really did start to look like a movement is exactly the worst nightmare of the Pharisees and the Jews, the leaders. So so they were at, they were, in a sense, more focused now on on getting the disciples to separate from Jesus than anything else. So they were they were they were they were turning to ridicule. And put downs and insults in order so his followers would either be shamed or have their doubts or somehow be intimidated not to follow Jesus anymore. So here's their logic. Moses spoke to God. God gave him the law. Jesus violated the law of Moses. Now, in their own mind, that was pretty impeccable logic also. See, they were remember, they went on the side of, hey, if he's a sinner, none of this else can possibly be true. And now they're saying, well, Moses spoke to God. God gave him the law. And we've already established that Jesus violates the law of Moses. Well, of course, they established no such thing, remember. Well, in their head, they were thinking that their traditions were on the same level as the law of Moses. So in their mind, they confused the two. And they said, well, you know, this is the same thing. We take our own book and we put it together with the book of Exodus, and now this is one and the same thing. It's all the law. But in reality, this is what he violated, the traditions of men, not the words of God. So in their opinion, though, in their rulership, and the way they wanted the people to think, this man was nothing but a sinner. He has nothing in common with Moses. He, he, he can't, it's ridiculous to compare him to the people, to the man that we represent, the man whose seat we take, Moses. Well, they have bad memories, these Jews. Actually, the truth is that they were blind and deaf and they couldn't hear, remember, the truth, the voice of God and Jesus 
not because it wasn't there. It definitely was, but because they were blind and deaf in their unbelief in their in their and whatever it was else in their hearts that made them not be open to the words of God through Jesus. But again, Jesus explained his real relationship. He has a relationship with Moses. In that respect, they're they're accurate in a sense. Yeah, he has a real relationship with Moses. And oh, by the way, he's revealed that more than once. And as a matter of fact, he's already revealed it in such a way that it should have convicted them. But they didn't have ears to hear or eyes to see. And they didn't they didn't receive the truth from Jesus about who he was in connection with Moses. Now, we as the readers of the Gospel of John have absolutely no excuse because in chapter one, John revealed the whole thing where he says the law was given by Moses. Grace and truth were shining forth from the Lord Jesus Christ. You see? But again, they didn't want it. By the way, in the same way, Jesus had explained his real relationship with God again and again by this point. He's my father. He sent me. I do the works that he ordained. I speak the words that he gave me to to speak. And again, anybody with an open heart would have accepted that by now. Not only because, you know, his own sheep hear his voice, but also because of all the things he'd already done. Really, anybody who was dealing with evidence and facts and logic and some understanding of how God works, some understanding of what was said about the Messiah that Jesus was fulfilling every day. Right. So you had to be willfully blind in your heart in order to not see that. I'd like you to turn to John chapter five. This has already happened. This is already a confrontation between Jesus and the Jews back in chapter five. And in the similarly, it was after he had performed another miracle. That miracle back then was, again, taking the, the, the paralytic and, and healing him so that he could walk again. John 5.45. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is who? Moses. You see, they, they were bragging about their relationship with Moses when in fact, Moses has already indicted them. He's the one who's going to accuse them. As a matter of fact, in the last day when there's a judgment, it's going to be Moses' words that the Lord will bring up to convict you. The one who accuses you is Moses in whom you have set your hope. Verse 46. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. That's his relationship with Moses. You see, Moses spoke the truth. Moses was from God. If you really believe that, if you really believe the things that Moses taught and said, then you would believe me for he wrote about me. Now, think of it. What are the facts? The facts are that Moses looked forward to see Jesus day and he saw it and was glad he wrote. That's Abraham, but it's the same principle. He wrote the things that pointed forward to Jesus. And if they had really believed it, if they really um, heard the the voice of God in the scriptures in the Old Testament, they would recognize that this is the this person fulfilled it. Moses really did write about Jesus. That's the facts. 
But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now, there's some testimony for you. See, again, in their very bringing up of Moses, once again, they're really just indicting themselves. But they, they're blind. Their arrogance wouldn't allow them to see any of that. But we know the truth, right? Jesus knows. The thing about Jesus is that he knows the truth. He stands behind it. And, 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 and that conviction pours forth in this, in this gospel of John. And so it's astounding that those who claim to be the experts on God's word could never hear it in God's son. If you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? What's Jesus' relationship between Moses? This is it, very simply. Moses received the law. Jesus fulfilled it. So in other words, if they, if, if they had believed Moses and what was in the law, for example, all the sacrifices that pointed forward to this Lamb of God who would come, then they would have believed Jesus. So it was it was a great, great thing that Moses received the law. He was a great, great man and a great leader, and he was carefully chosen. And it was a unique thing for him to be able to hear the voice of God and to take that law, which was a, which was a perfect law in the sense that it covered all, all the behavior of, of the people, uh, how, to, how the nation should be set up, how the sacrifices should be performed. But Jesus is the end of the law. Jesus fulfilled it all. All right. You know, a lot of times, a lot of times Christians will say Jesus kept the law. But that's far short of Jesus' relationship to the law. You see, keeping the law means doing what it has to say in the moral realm. And that's, of course, important. But Jesus goes far beyond that. He fulfilled all of it. All of the sacrifices pointed to him. He, so in other words, he's greater than Moses, right? Who's greater, the one who, who heard the prophecy about somebody or the one who fulfills the prophecy? Clearly, the one who fulfills the prophecy is greater. Please look at Luke chapter 24 as we wrap things up this morning. Luke 24:44. This is the truth about Jesus' relationship with Moses and the law and the prophets. He's greater than Moses, greater than David, greater than Isaiah, greater than Jeremiah. Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Now, setting Jesus has risen from the dead. He is now very soon to be to ascend into heaven. He's gathered his disciples together and he's telling them that. He wants their eyes to be open now as to who he really is. And this is how he puts it. John 24, 44. Now he said to them, these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you. That all things that were written, which were written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That's the truth. That's the truth, that everything that was written about Jesus, and so therefore lots of things were written about Jesus in the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms, some great Messianic Psalms, by the way. Remember, we studied a little bit, a high level, Messianic prophecy in the Old Testament recently. It's in the Law of Moses. It's clearly in the Prophets, and it's in the Psalms. Jesus fulfilled all of it. That's the real relationship between Moses and Jesus. 
Okay, let's go now back to our passage this morning, and we'll wrap things up. John chapter 9, verse 29. Now they're going to lie about Jesus. Now they're going to try to set up Moses great, Jesus is nothing. Moses was the lawgiver, Jesus was the lawbreaker. And they're going to put it in this particular way that's a total lie. John 9, 29. We know that that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. Bold-faced lie. They knew where he was from in every sense of the word. Okay? Or at least they should have. Right? Geographically, they should have known. They did know that he was from Galilee. But spiritually, he had told them again, and it's just like the man born blind. How many times do I have to tell you before you get it? He, they, he, he told them over and over and over and over again where he was from. Let's look at one example of that. Go back to chapter. Well, there's a statement. That's a nice statement. I'll let you look at that for a moment. Jesus, now here, Jesus knew where he was from. Does that make sense? Something, something you know where you're from. Right. They're saying they don't know. They do know because he's told them again and again and again. He's a credible witness, just like the blind man told them again and again. I was born blind. Right. But you're the ones that are blind. You don't have the eyes to see. He didn't say that. Jesus will. Jesus knew where he was from and he had told them many, many times. As a matter of fact, probably remember, we we have been studying the Gospel of John. In a sense, we're saying, how many times does he have to say this? Well, as many times as they don't believe it, right? John chapter 8, verse 42. Now he's going to talk about his relationship with his father, who is God. John 8, 42. Jesus said to them, these are the Jews again, in chapter 8, if God were your father, you would love me. Oh, wow. Think about it. What a one-two punch. If you believe Moses, you believe me. See, in the matter of belief, right? They would have believed what Moses has taught. If that had been true, you would have believed me. Now we're going to move into the love relationship of Jesus, his father. If God were your father, you would love me. See that? That's that's Now we see the truth of what's going on. They didn't love God. That's the root of their problem. They didn't know God. He To know God, by the way, is eternal life. If you don't know God, you don't know squat, if I can put it that way, about life, this life, or the next one. And they didn't. If God were your father, you would love me. For Where did he come from? We don't know where he's from. I proceeded forth and have come from God. Can you get any clearer than that? Where did he come from? God, right? And he's told them that dozens of times. Every time he talked about God as his father, that was he saying. How many times he said, I've been sent by the father, the father who sent me. If God were your father, you would love me for I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Where did he come from? God. Who sent him? God, the father. And then the frustration. And it's the question that they could never answer. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? Can you imagine? And he answered his own question. It is because you cannot hear my word. You cannot, because there's no truth in them. You are of your father, the devil. 
and you do, you want to do the desires of your father. That's why you won't listen to me. You're the wrong father. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. They do not stand in the truth because there's no truth in them. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And like they're his children, so they follow right along. They were trying to get the blind man to lie, but they were liars all the time. Verse 45, but because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. That's an incredible indictment. Because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? Remember, they were trying to say he was a sinner. He'd already given them the opportunity to present their evidence. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, and he did, why do you not believe me? He who is from of God hears the words of God. Interesting. What were they trying to say? He's not from God, right? Well, he who is from God hears the words of God. Notice. For this reason, you do not hear the words of God. Why? Because you are not of God. There's the truth. They were saying, we don't know where he's from. He's not from God. When in reality, they were the ones who were not from God. Jesus is from God. Jesus speaks the words of God. Jesus is the son of God. The Jewish leaders would never hear the truth that Jesus spoke about these things. Why? They were the word, the ones who were not of God. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you again today for the revelation in your word in this gospel. We thank you, Father, that on the one hand, you show the glory of your son and his real identity as the son of God and the Messiah of the Jews. On the other hand, you show the depravity of man in hearts that are closed and eyes that are blind, who, who far from hearing the truth, reject it because it is the truth. And just as this was true of the Pharisees in the days of your son who walked this earth, it remains true today. This is the world that we live in. We know that if they persecuted him, they'll persecute us. We also know that he's the way and the truth and the life. And the only way to come to you is through him. We ask now, Father, that you would give us the boldness that we need to have in this day to preach the truth about Jesus. And we ask also, Father, for your blessing and protection. We pray for this world. We pray for the people of the world. We pray for the church, especially the body of Christ. We pray, Father, that as we know you will, that you would take care of us, that you would work all things together for good in our lives. And we know you will because you promised. We thank you again that you are our father and that we have the we have the truth and we have the spirit inside to explain the truth to us. So we want to thank you for all these gifts this morning. In Jesus' name, by the power of the Spirit, amen. amen. Come join us again on Thursday, 6.30. We have Bible study. We, we meet here, and again, we also are on Skype on Thursdays at 6.30 as we continue to study the prophet Isaiah. With that, you're dismissed. Enjoy this great day, this New England weather, which I don't think we're going to have much longer. So enjoy it now.